Hey there, welcome back to another episode of MVP Business, where we showcase leaders who live through their mission, vision, and passion. I'm your host, Steph Silver, owner of Vine Collective, a unique marketing and coaching agency where we meet people where they are on their journey to connect with customers and employees and to navigate their personal journeys to overcome challenges and rise to the next level of their work home, and spiritual lives. Today's guest is Esther Weinberg. Esther is a business growth accelerator that equips executives in high growth industries to create game-changing breakthroughs, increase profitability in declining markets, and create successful and sustainable, portable virtual cultures with executives, leaders, and teams. This amazing human is also the co-founder of Being Me Foundation, a member of Harvard's Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, and the Forbes Coaches Council, and a contributor to Forbes. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Esther. Oh, thank you so much for having us. I feel like I want to interview you at your Thank with lots. Some of my info might come out as we go along. Feel free to ask questions too. <laughs> but let's first talk with you telling us a little bit about your background and yourself. You have had an amazing journey so far. Tell us a little bit about where you were, who you were before you started this executive coaching business. Yeah, it's really, you know, it's so funny because it's the kind of thing I think that when I was in college, if someone, if my mother would have said to me, where will you be in 20 years? I don't think I would have said what I said. But I actually started my career in publicity and marketing. And well, really, I would say publicity and marketing and then a transition to publicity. And I was doing publicity on the agency side and then and then was doing it more inside of organizations. So as an example, I was doing it on the agency side. I got you know very fortunate when I was 22 years old, I got connected to a woman who ran an entertainment PR agency. And so she really trained me. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was really a bullpen. It was like us in her studio apartment in New York City. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And so there we are in our it's myself and another woman the same age as me and this and and, a, and a Pam who was our boss and three of us who were sitting in her studio apartment. On, I mean, it was literally like a movie, you know, on the phones, on and off, to call journalists, <laughs> making stories. And, and she really taught us the art of publicity, which I think is an art and a science. Well, now much more science, but it was art and a science. And so I did that for a while and then I transitioned doing um, that for financial, for the financial world, doing advertising, publicity, and marketing, and then wound up getting an amazing job at FX in New York. It was it was not the FX network that we see today. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if they call it a network, but um, we we they did all of their production out of they did eight hours of live production out of a sixty five hundred fully functional studio apartment in New York City. Oh wow, crazy. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was, it was designed. It had a rec room, a ballroom. It was, it was just, it was like a kid's playground. You know, if you're going to have like your dream job. And then I got a second dream job. I was relocated to Los Angeles to work for Disney and to head up publicity for them, for their, all their owned divisions. And that was, a, that was a dream job too. And I wind up, I wound up leaving and starting, I thought I was going to start my own publicity company. And I actually ceremoniously started, you know, just the way that the world works, you know, you find 
uh, one person leads you to another, leads you to another thing. And, and I found executive coaching early on when no one was doing it. I don't even know how I thought I'd actually have a career in a business habit. I, I just, it's, it's funny when you look back on it now because it was really in its infancy. It was over 20 years ago. And so I became developed as an executive coach. And then my business expanded to us doing organizational development work and leadership development work and training facilitation for teams and organizations. And so it really grew. And so that's what I would say is the, the infancy of me before I had the ready zone and coming into it. And it was interesting because how I made the transition to this work was I think I had, when I was looking at the next stage of my life after I left the publicity world and I was really very lost. I remember thinking to myself, I, 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 was, I was in this existential, existential crisis and I was in Asia in Thailand. I remember arguing with a monk. You argue with a monk. It's not a good thing. Life is impermanent. No, it's not. <laughs> Everything has changed. No, it's not. <laughs> How old were you at that point? I think I was 31. Okay. Do you like that? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember I came back from the United States and and it was just so beautiful how I discovered the work that I do now. And I realized there was threads of it all along that in all my work, I had really cared about human potential. I had really cared about how we treat people. I really cared about human dignity. And really, when I look back on it, because you know the work we do now at the Ready Zone is creating workplace cultures of trust, respect, and psychological safety that are not just valued, no one would argue with that, but it's as measured as the bottom line. And mm. we've created our own KPIs for that. But when I look back, I think to myself, oh, okay. So all the times when I had upsets at certain points when I was in corporations, oh, it was because we didn't treat people fairly. Or when the CFO at Disney said third of our workforce left and no one really, there wasn't anyone who really mm. said anything about it. Let's do it. Oh, third of the workforce. Like I'm, like I'm asking you, would you like coffee? Do you take away sugar or cream? I mean, that's exactly the way the conversation was. Mm. And I myself, the head of sales, sat there like, wait a second, a third of our workforce left. How are we not paying attention to that? And there was this conversation of, oh, well, we're at this big company, we work for Disney, of course people come to work for us. But, it was, but I, I thought, oh, okay, that may be true, but shouldn't we look under the hood? Mm-hmm. And so at you know, the ready zone we do is we do look under the hood. <laughs> you know, it's really getting in the way from people realizing their full potential. And so that's how I transitioned from a 6,500 square foot apartment doing publicity work <laughs> to the work I do today. It's a strange transition. It is. But I wonder, what do you think allowed you to have so many dream jobs what about you got you there and got you to the, another one and another one because most people don't have that experience maybe they have one when they first start or you know when they're in their 40s but you had this really great opportunity young to be excited about what you were doing i think that it's a few things um one is i think that my parents raised me with a crazy work ethic. You know, I had this 
really instilled in me very young, a very passionate work ethic. I think I, I made a decision when I was in college, strangely enough, when I remember when I was trying to quit a major and I was taking all these courses of things I should do, accounting, investment finance, um, I forget what else it was. And I remember one day waking up saying, I'm not, I'm not good at any of this. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I'm not good at any of it. And, and so what do I actually like? And I, I found, I found publicity through that. And I would say that there was a dogged tenacity about it. Like I, I even remember in college, there was a, a company that I wanted to work for called Burson Marsteller. And it was a globally renowned agency. And I really thought, you know, if I hadn't worked like that, I would have died and gone to heaven if I would have gotten a job there. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to go for it. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they give me the job? Why wouldn't they hire me? And so it was, I think there's, there's sometimes <laughs> a bit of a, a dog with a bone combined with a bit of naivete. Mm-hmm. And I think even when I went for the job at FX when I was leaving finance, going back to entertainment, uh, the guy that recommended me, he said, you know, there's a job open at FX. And, and, I, and he said, you'll never get it. Wow. And, it was a good and I thought, oh, challenge. Tell <laughs> <laughs> someone they can't do something, right? I remember I got the job description and it was three or four pages, the tiniest type, single space. And I remember when I looked at it, I really... Didn't, I didn't have all the experience. I didn't. Well, I don't even know how anyone could. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you know when you're, you're trying to dream up like your dream spouse. <laughs> it's like you're not going to get all that. So I remember thinking, I have to go for this job. This job looks amazing. I have to go for it. It was extremely daunting. And someone said to me, "Do you?" you know how many people are applying for that job. And I remember thinking, I can't think about my competition. Because if I thought about my competition, I'd swallow myself up. I would think about all the reasons why I could not and never aspire to that job. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because when I went and I interviewed for the job, I think what got me the job was my work ethic. Because uh, when I went to interview for the job, they were doing construction on the floors, they were still building the office space. And the woman who interviewed me, a woman named Ellen Cooper, she she was interviewing me, but we pulled my deadline in the middle of it. And so she said, you know, look, as part of this job, can you, here's a writing sample, I need you to write this press release. And I was like, no problem. So I go off and I write a press release. And, and then I came back and I'm like, well, what do you, I finished it. And, and I said, well, what do you want me to do with it? She said, can you send it to LA? I said, no problem. At that time, they had fax machine it to LA. And then I said, well, what do you need? And you said, like, you're on deadline. What else, you know, what do you need? Mm-hmm. help. And I think, even though I had another layer to go through to, for the interview, I think that that, how can I help? What can I do? What else do you need? And and not thinking about the, the competitor forces around me. Right. Like this like this four million. I'm sure there's hundreds of people off for this job, but for me it was like, no, I'm just going to go in, do the best that I can. I know that I have the job, and let's do it. So that's I think what what got it for me. And then when I transitioned to Disney, I think I had the same kind of thinking. Like, why would you know, a little bit of a 
egoistic arrogance. You're like, why would they take me? <laughs> <laughs> they know me. Well, it's people that knew me. And I'm like, they know me. They know how I work. Why would they want to take me? And then it took forever to get the job. But I think it was something like that. And so when you, you know when you transition to be an entrepreneur, I didn't know I was transitioning to be an entrepreneur. I think for me, I had left my job because I didn't like it anymore. And um, and I resigned. They didn't want me. They didn't want me anymore. I didn't want them anymore. And so you know it was like mutual mutual breakup. Mm-hmm. And so, but I would say that at the time, I think that I didn't really know what I was really getting myself into as an entrepreneur. And I would say that that's probably part of. Every job, in a certain respect, I didn't really fully know what I was getting myself into. But I was a bit of a dog with a bone, and I was very patient. And I thought, I, I've got to make it work, and I've got to look true to myself. And that, I think, has always proven to be the case. I don't always know what's true for myself in the moment, because I think it evolves as you age, mm-hmm. and your experiences in your life. But I, I do have time to be aware of it in the moment as I can. Yeah, I was talking with, uh, I think it was Maria Orozova. You mentioned you didn't know what you were getting into. She said, sometimes if you do, you won't do it. (laughs) So just start and you'll figure it out. The other thing that you were saying is I want to kind of touch on this a little bit because we have a lot of young people who aren't quite in leadership positions yet that listen to this podcast. And one of the things that I always recommend in any position anywhere, I don't care if you're a server at a restaurant, if you are always willing to look around and do what's necessary, not just what's in your job description, then you'll succeed. So yeah. it sounds like that you had some of that in you or a lot of it. I think kind of look around and it's not, it's how can I provide value and what's needed in the situation. And sometimes people aren't ready for that, mm. meaning that, you have to also make sure that where you're leaning in is the right place. And sometimes you won't know that until after you step all over yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do think that having a level of resilience and desire to help at any place at any time, because look at the end of the day, if, if someone says you're not a right fit, or if someone says that they don't want you in a job, they want to let you go from a job. You have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I, I literally did everything I could. I helped every single place where I can. I gave my heart, my soul, spirit. Not from a place of being a victim, but of a place saying, like, I know that I did whatever I could. That also, the other part of it, you know, for giving advice to young people is that you also have to make sure that you're always willing to learn mm-hmm. and improve your skills. Because I see this a lot in organizations is that this you, know, you get hired for a job in one day, but then what happens sometimes is that you skill out of it because the job runs faster than you and you're not keeping up with your skills. And your interest is not there. So it doesn't keep you lean and hungry. And I think being lean and hungry also is really, really vital to also and to in all this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the same in entrepreneurship as well. You're constantly needing to look all around and see how can I serve my people? How can I serve my customers? All of those things. So yeah, always feeling that hunger, willing and ready to work, but also rest when you need to. (laughs) 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 And it's hard for entrepreneurs sometimes. (laughs) For entrepreneurs, I think it's true in general for the workplace today. That's why burnout's at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Is that we don't know how to oscillate between stress and recovery and then allowing other people to oscillate between stress and recovery and being able to know that 
the analogy I often give is that if you were an Olympic athlete, then you were a runner, you wouldn't run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It would be physically impossible to maintain that three engines in five days a year. It's not possible. And so how do you actually have rest and recovery built in to your work? And especially if people are now working more remotely, how do you actually intentionally build that in, in a scheduled way that you don't get yourself off it? So you have real rituals and routines and, and you're forming new habits because that will keep you healthy and engaged because look, the simplest thing, if you don't get good sleep, you don't make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, all the way around. I just had a sleep expert on the podcast, one of the recent episodes. And yeah, he was talking about all the the ripple effect of all the things that lack of sleep or poor sleep quality, how that affects absolutely everything. And so yeah, having for him, he goes into organizations and helps them to better optimize the workforce through their sleep schedules. So he'll make recommendations for let these people come in at 10 and stay till eight or let them come in at noon and or vice versa. Like that, let this section come in at six o'clock in the morning because they're ready to roll. (laughs) So you were just talking about individually taking that time. How do you work that into an organization? Because that's something that you talk to your clients about, right? Working that into that rest and recuperation into the culture as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because as part of what I mentioned before, like that we've created as a way of measuring whether or not you're creating an environment of respect and psychological safety, we do it through what we call zone performance indicators. We have six key zones that we teach people and educate people on because it's a small thing. So I'll give you a small example to answer your question. I think we don't know the stress we put on people by a simple thing as not being your word. How often, I can't even tell you the amount of times I see this, we're going to have breaks in our day. Good people make interesting, make wonderful decisions, but then they step all over themselves. So they'll say things like, I've seen this all over organizations, especially since 2020. We're not going to have meetings after five. Or no meeting Friday. Or no meetings between one and two o'clock so that everybody has an opportunity to eat and spend time with their family, right? And then what happens? Meetings get scheduled on Friday. Meetings get scheduled after five o'clock. Meetings get scheduled between one and two. And they don't get scheduled because there's an emergency. They start getting scheduled because maybe there's a little something that's urgent and then it starts becoming the new habit even though you said something else. And so... You have to examine the honesty of the routines in which you're creating in the day, just in the day, that you're you're expecting people to show up for. I remember there was one of, we have a six-month virtual leadership program called RISE, and every month we have that's devoted to one of the zones, like we're talking about, and one, one month we were talking about connect ready, which we were talking about communication and how to be your word and how to offer responsibility in your communication. And a woman tells a story that she's at brunch on a Saturday with her family. She's got really young kids. And just imagine this, you're a mom. Just imagine your phone rings on a Saturday. Now she answered it, so we have to deal with that. But, you know, okay. She's in the bathroom with her child. who's an infant. She puts the phone, and her boss says, why are you whispering? And she said, well, I'm in the bathroom 
with my baby and I'm changing my baby. And our boss goes, oh, pauses for like two seconds for dignity and then keeps going. Like, oh, about that you know, about that project. And I remember when she said to the, the group when we came back in the fall week to the, the session, she was like, I was so horrified that she didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you're right. I can be calling you. And it was, and it was no conversation afterward. And then what I said to her was, well, where are you in this? Like, I, I bet what she did was, was not great. You answer the phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what conversation do you need to now have now with yourself as well as your boss? She's like, and she said, look, I know it could not be that I answered the phone, but I thought it was an emergency. You called me on Saturday, 10 o'clock in the morning. And she doesn't know I'm in a restaurant, but I'm in a restaurant with my family. I said to her, so now you need to have a conversation with your boss about how you want to be treated and also about your schedule and your boundaries around the two. So lots of things also have to do with creating a healthy boundary. You introduced that concept. I said that once to a president of the division once, like, sounds like you need boundaries. She's like, what's that? (laughs) Yeah, I know it's interesting because I feel like we were starting to understand that before 2020, we were starting to have a little bit of conversation about, I mean, we've been talking about it for years, but the millennials were like really bringing it into the workforce of no separation of work and life and these kind of things. And then once we all started working from home, boundaries out the window, like everybody was working either not at all or 24 hours a day. So how have you seen the repercussions of that in so much more of the workforce is continued to stay home or is some sort of in between. How do you recommend managing that and staying true? Like you said, there's metrics and KPIs. How do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because there was an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago about monitoring software. The companies are now monitoring people's performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, because of a hybrid work, if I can't see you working, that means you're not working. And so I'm going to go and monitor you through the software. And they were, in the article, they were also referencing some people that they were saying, there are things you can't monitor. So, for example, let's say I decided to read, I'm researching something, but it's not on my computer. And it's a book. Or I'm writing something. It's not necessarily on my computer. How do you actually account for that time? Mm-hmm. And so... Okay, it's a long one story, but I would say there's a few things. One is that I think you actually, it's kind of like the conversation I had with an executive a few weeks ago. She was saying, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get people back to the office. And I said, well, you know, what, what's the conversation like, right? It's like the conversation you and I are asking, having what you asked me. And she said, well, we just go round and round. We don't really get anywhere. We just know they have to be in the office three days a week. That's our hybrid model for now. Eventually, it'll be five days, but for now, that's our model. So I said, well, well, you have to change the question. The question is, how do we get people into this office like a prison? How do we get people in this prison? We close the doors. We say, you have to stay here. But the conversation has been, what kind of environment are we inviting people into that they're excited, enthusiastic, and wanting to be here, to run here, to collaborate, to storm, to create together, and to innovate together? And so I think that part of it is that what I saw in what started with COVID is that we all moved home, but the conversation we never have was what's the culture that is portable. So what ported over 
was really what your culture truly was. Mm. Mm-hmm. There were signs of goodness, like what you were talking about, where people would ask how people were feeling and really take a moment. And then people just said, I got to get busy, right? And I got to get working. And so that went to ask someone how they're feeling. It takes an extra five, 10 minutes. I actually need to listen. I need to pay attention. And I got to work. I don't have that kind of time. And so now I'm all about, I'm working, I'm working. And so what are we inviting people into, whether they're in an office or they're hybrid? We're inviting people into an assembly line mm-hmm. or a machine. But what we're inviting people into is we have to invite them into the fact that if we spend more time at work than at home, they're bringing their whole lives, their whole selves to work. And so how do we honor that? I thought there was a great example. So we're launching an executive think tank in two months, and there was a for executive vice presidents only. And there was an EVP I was talking to, and I thought this was genius. He said, and this is a great example. He said, look, I know my people need to take care of their family. They need to take care of their dogs, their pets, their elderly parents, no matter what it is. And I know if I don't give them their t- that time, they're going to steal it from me. Mm-hmm. I got to leave early for this, or I got a doctor's appointment, or, you know, hey, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this. But that's not always 100% true. And so what if I just said to them, so what he did was he did an experiment. He said with his team between the hours of three and five, I want you to monitor what you're working on. And is it urgent or is it important? And so, of course, 10% was urgent. The rest was important. And he said, okay, out of that, that's important. How much of that could have been done in a physical office and how much of that could be done remotely? And so they found that, but I think 40%, I, think, I, I don't know if I'm getting all the percentages right, but something like I think 40%, could be done at the office, but the rest really you could do anywhere. And so he said, okay, well then when your kids come home from school, they come home between pretty much like three and five. It's when your kids are at work, alert and awake, and when they're perhaps even more desiring to spend time with you than at night when they're tired and they crampy and they they don't spend time with you. And so between three and five, I want everybody to put time for them. Because I know you're going to work in the evening. And so let's just shake it up. Mm-hmm. I find time to spend time with your family, find time to run the errands that you need to, and then come back to work and do what you need to do. Because I know, and he, he manages, I think, 100 people. And I know you're going to give me your best. I think if we did more of that, like how are we actually examining what the work is working, and instead of putting ourselves in a prism of how we've been working, which we know doesn't fully work, we have to really re-examine the work and how we are working in order to know what works or not in your specific situation. Is that just because you may work at one company, I work at another, but what works for you is not going to work for me. And so I think if we did more of that, that would absolutely game change the work environment. I absolutely 100% agree. And even if it's within the same organization, your family functions different than my family. Maybe you don't have kids or you have older kids and whatever it might be, everyone is different. I remember being in the car with my oldest son and it was after COVID. So like there was no traffic for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden we were going to the dentist office and it was eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot about rush hour. And he's like, rush hour? What is that? (laughs) So I had to explain, well, everybody goes to work at the exact same time. And then at the end of the day, we all come home at the exact same time. He's like, 
Why? Why does everybody have to be there at the same time? Like, is there a meeting everybody has to be there for? (laughs) I'm like, Liam, you're brilliant. You really need to go on tour. (laughs) Because it's true. There's absolutely no reason. And kudos to that EVP who understands and values that when his team members are happy and their family members are happy, then they're going to show up. Just like you said with sleep, they're going to show up to work being happy to provide for that company who cares about them and being emotionally ready because they didn't just tell their kids to shut up and go away. I have, you know, whatever. It's all so very important. And the flexibility in that When I manage people, every single person is different. Their personalities are different. Their family personalities are different. Work with a lot of designers. So sometimes the designers are really fast, but not as accurate, but they want to like be in at eight, be out at five and be done. So I know that I can give all the deadline projects to this person because they're going to get it done. I just have to pay attention to the details and make sure that everything is correct. I know over here, these designers, they'll spend hours, like you said, just thinking. Their creative time is when they're on a walk or when they're in a shower. That can't be tracked, but they're going to take a long time. They're going to have a much more creative output, but it's a different project. And they work. Yeah, it's midnight and they go, oh my gosh, I got it. And so they get up and they do the work at that time. Well, I can't expect both of those people to be in the chair from eight to five because their productivity is different. It's true. And that's even taking family completely off the table. Yeah, which adds a whole other dynamic. You know, the thing that I would often say when we're talking about hybrid work is that, I mean, or work in general now, is we run a mentoring program inside of a global global multinational. And yesterday we were doing check-ins with the mentors and then check-ins with the mentees. And we were checking with the mentors so as part of the mentoring program, we have sessions on a monthly basis that are not mandatory, but that people can come because we know that it's a heavy lift for mentors to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking and one of the one of the, the guys said yesterday, like, you know, it should be called the therapist is in. And I was laughing about it because, you know, we were laughing together and I said, you know, in all seriousness, here's what happened. We are now in conversations with people in ways that we've never happened before about their emotional and their emotions and their emotional well-being. We always needed to, and there's so much data and research on this, we always needed to, but only until 2020 will we, did we have a willingness to bring it into the workplace consciously, more consciously, because we were seeing a return on investment. Mm. Mm-hmm. work, we weren't necessarily being a return on investment. At the end of the day, we have to remember something that's very, very important. But I said, you know, it's really important that we do index on the emotionality of people. Because if you think about it, we used to operate, well, I say that this is the way the world works, and a gentleman named Julio Olala talks a lot about this. But then in the world of performance, we used to take action that leads to results. We don't like the results, we take different actions. What we never deal with is the observer, the observer who's taking those actions. And so when I look out in the world, I see the world very differently than you do. And what has me see? What has me see certain actions take and what has me not see other actions take? You could call that cognitive blindness or blind spots, right? 
But what has me actually do it is because of my upbringing, who I am, my experiences, the friends that I have, the family that surrounds me. That has gives me sight. And so what we do in the writing zone, especially in one of our zones, action ready, is we teach people how do you actually slip on and off lenses. It's like if you're a photographer and you see through a telephoto lens, mm-hmm. even if you're not in, in the content, right? Telephoto lens, I want to see only one thing very close up. Wide angle lens, like, where did this form come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the veggies, right? It's how do we teach people how to understand how to switch on and off lenses so that we actually can see mm-hmm. in different situations. That I think is foundational to what we're talking about. Because unless leadership is a game of sight, and so unless we actually are working with people on that kind of granular level when we lead them and we speak to them, then we can't actually create sustainable results. They are not sustainable. <laughs> and so unless we take issue with the observer, we're never going to be able to see differently. And I'll give you an example. Like we talk a lot about, when we talk about connect writing, we talk about how do you engage in tough conversations, right? I did the discussion on this a couple of days ago. We're talking about, okay, how do I engage in tough conversations? I make notes, I make bullets, and I come and I talk to you, right? That's the old way of doing things. But the interesting thing with that, it doesn't necessarily... One thing that doesn't take away the observer, me, in the equation. Like, I can't handle, I don't have no idea how you're going to react. But what I know is if I give people something called the five A's, which in the five A's stand for, um, they stand for aware, accurate, acquire, accountability, and action. So the first A is, what feelings am I aware of? So you basically journal all the feelings you're aware of. If I'm having some conversation with you, it's paradoxical. I love you. I hate you. I'm upset. I'm happy. Whatever it is. No one's reading this. It's all you. Accurate. What is the truth of the situation? Is it accurate or is it just my personal interpretation? How do you tell that? I often say to people, if I put you on the stand of a court of law, you swear your hand on the deck of Bibles. What's the facts? Very simple. When you look at it through that lens, facts tend to be fewer in number. Mm-hmm. But when I ask you what you make it mean, mm-hmm. this happened with the executive yesterday. She just, president of a division, promoted someone to a senior vice president role, has up this big footprint. And she herself, the president of the division, has done what she can to get herself out of the weeds. So she's like, I'm not in the granular work. My work is top level. So... Her director, the woman that she newly promoted into a job, said to her, can you be on this call that she had to take? There was going to be a difficult conversation. And so this woman, the president, says to me, she's like, I don't understand why I have to be there. It really scares me. It makes me anxious that she would want me on this phone call. Didn't I just promote her? Doesn't she have the skills and the abilities to do this job? I was like, oh, let's back up. And then let's look at the facts of the situation. Just facts. And, she, and I said, well, what are they? And she said, well, she asked me to be in this meeting. I said, okay. And I said, what else do we got? She said, the facts of the situation, we're going to have to give someone some bad news. I said, okay. Got it. Anything else? Nope. I'm like, okay, what do you make it mean? That I don't, I don't know if the woman has the ability to do the job. I'm going to be sucked into the weeds again. I'm going to have to do all this work I didn't want to do. I've worked tirelessly over the last few months with you to make sure that I'm not the grindly focus, 
is this woman real now that I I was so invested in this person and I fought to get her promoted, is she the right person now for the job? And went on and on. And so I said to her, well, what's the impact if you continue to see it that way? Well, that I will feel like I made the wrong choice, that I won't give her the chance to actually be the job. And I said, well, then what's your intention, though? Your, your relationship with her, what you want for her? She's like, my intention for her is succeed, and my intention is to get clarity. I said, okay, your intention is to get clarity. What's the conversation you're going to have with her now? She's like, well, I'm just going to, I said, what are you curious about? She's like, I'm just going to talk to her about what prompted her the invitation for me to join. I said, okay, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As humans, we're meaning-making machines, right? We make meaning out of things because our brains are wired that way. And when we were in the dinosaur age and fighting saber-toothed tigers and the saber-toothed tiger came and ran to me, I made an implication that that's dangerous. And so I'm going to run. But our brains haven't changed since then. Mm-hmm. And so... We're still making interpretations all the time, but now we're doing it at work. We're doing it with our family. We're doing it with our friends. We're doing it with our coworkers. We're doing it with our boss. We're doing it with really important relationships. We're doing it with clients. And so we teach people what we call the reality check. How do you actually know what's true versus how you're interpreting the situation? And so it's simple. You look at the facts, what you're making it mean. What's the impact of you just to see it from that way? And go back to your original intention. Now what action do you take? Because that gives you a greater level of self-agency and self-authoring of your life rather than being pushed and pulled by your interpretations, but it actually facilitates you to ground yourself with a wait a second, is this real? Because the, the only how I know something is real when I choose to believe it. I think that you're a nasty person. Because I choose, like, you did something, I don't know, you moved the paper one way, and I'm like, ooh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Step, I don't know about that. And so then I choose to believe, like, you're a little dangerous. That's the only time that my beliefs become something. Then they, excuse me, they move me into a different action, right? It moves me and not trust you. Mm-hmm. What if the opposite of that was true? What if I, would they stop myself and say, wait a second, you just moved a piece of paper. How does that make her dangerous? It's not. Okay, let's give her a chance. Then the world becomes very different and how I act with you and interact with you becomes very different. And that's what I'm talking about, the kinds of action and results, but taking issue with the observer and how we see it mm-hmm. is just the results that we take. Mm-hmm. Because in evidence, if I was look at after she absolutely asked the question of her direct report in the wrong way, she'd be like, what the hell were you thinking? That's basically what she was going to do. She's like, I don't understand. What is she thinking? And I was like, what are you curious about? She's like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And like you brought up the example of moving the paper, but sometimes it's a look or a tone. And sometimes it has nothing to do with you. It's like, oh, well, I was mad at my boyfriend or my dog ate whatever. And it has nothing to do with the situation. But if you're not willing to go into that conversation with openness and a willingness to learn, then or have the conversation to begin with, then how much deeper does it go? And then you're scared that your superiors are going to doubt you. And it just goes all over the place if you're not willing to go into it with open eyes and ears and a, a little bit of curiosity. Yeah, and when I, you know, about, you know, the, when we teach people the reality check model, it's such a relief because of any level, at any point in time, anyone can do it. And you don't need a title, you don't need to be 
a well-schooled with PhD in order to be able to pause yourself in order to self-author. And I think that is, it's going to be, that I think is game-changing in any environment, especially in a hybrid environment where all I see is you in a box. And I don't necessarily have the physical relationship with you and the bonding that we would have had outside of it. And I'll make all sorts of assumptions that will really impede and sacrifice the work. If you think about it, those kinds of conversations are vital because that's what impacts productivity. Right. So in all of your work, what do you think are some of the most impactful concepts or pieces of advice that you would give that come up on a regular basis? Like I would, I would think that this is one of the biggest one because this emotional intelligence of being able to pause for a minute and look internally and question how you're observing changes everything. Yeah, I think that what comes up is exactly what we talked about, the reality check. And I think, it, like I said, at any level at any time that comes up, like I said, this is the president of the division, woman who's 23 years of experience, you know, it's, not, it's not about it. So the reality check comes up, I would say also, how do you, what we were talking a little bit before about how do we engage, how do I have a conversation with someone where it's, it's coming from the right place? And so with our 5A model that we're talking about, if you're looking at what am I feel, what's what am I aware of that I'm feeling, what's accurate to my own personal interpretation, you know, acquire what living in my mental part for the situation, accountability, what's my part. Mm. And even if it's, I tell people, if you think you're right, 0.5%, 1%, what would that be for you? Like a tiny sliver of your part, you know? And then what proactive action can I take? Because sometimes it's not even having the conversation. Sometimes it could be gathering more data. Mm. Those kinds of tools that facilitate a level of pausing, because I think especially at every level today and with the speed in which we're working, pausing is not optional anymore, and yet it's a luxury. You know, I have people all the time say to me, you know, if I pause and really looked for a moment, as what was occurring over there for them or what was occurring over here for me, it could have changed everything. Because that will dictate whether or not I'm going to engage in the conversation, what's my next action I'm going to take, what's the ripple effects that will, it will be, and I'm able to think more thoughtfully. So I think some of those that were the elements that we're talking about right now, those are some of the most things that come up again and again and again. Now, there's other things like companies that work, they don't have strategy, they don't have vision. You know, there's other things like that. But I would say on an interpersonal level that things that you can't control are the things that we're talking about. Absolutely. What are you most passionate about in the work that you do, that you get to do now? It seems like you're excited about all of it, having these conversations. (laughs) You know, the biggest thing that that I'm excited about is, you know, so look, the work we do is all around change. Mm -hmm. If you really think about it, right? And so what I'm excited about is that there are more people willing to look at what actually creates sustainable and continuous change more now than ever. And I think that people are willing to look at things that are not surface anymore. You know, where lots of times people say, oh, we need change management practices. And I'm like, there's no change management practices. Everything is change management now. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to figure out what your communication plan is, your communication plan is always now ongoing. How do we facilitate people knowing more, 
what things do we tell them? What things are important not to tell them? How do we cascade the messages? Because we're pacing with the environment and where people are really at and where the business is at. You know, there's, so I would say those are the things that I'm most excited about. Like what I was saying before, we're launching this executive think tank for EVPs in the next couple of months. We're launching it in October. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about doing it is because at that executive vice president level, I mean, you're right below the C-suite. And so you've been given so much power and autonomy and authority, but where do you go to refuel yourself? Mm-hmm. Where do you go? I mean, at that level, yes, you may have confidants and mentors. And also, where do you have a confidential, safe environment where people don't know you, where they're willing to actually challenge your thinking in a very new way? Mm-hmm. Because they don't know you. They don't have a lot of experience. The group is cross-functional, cross-industry. And at that level, you need someone to be that direct with you. And because you're all coming from similar level, similar, because you know you're thinking bigger, you're able to challenge each other in a way that's incredibly productive mm-hmm. to your work environment. And you can come away from each session going, wow, I didn't know that I would think that way. Oh, I'm glad I was challenged. And it will transform the work and how you're leading. Absolutely. That outside honest perspective. You're afraid sometimes what you're afraid to say internally, you can share with people who have those same questions with their organization with a completely different business, different business model, same level, same level of thinking. That's right. That's right. Yes. And it's good to have a group of people that can actually say, I mean, forgive my language, call bullshit on it. Like, Mm -hmm. really? Are you sure? I don't know about that. Like, hey, we tried that. That didn't really work for us. Sounds like a similar situation. And from a place where, well, they're in a different industry, well, let's look at this. Let's take a look at this and look at it in a new way. Mm-hmm. Why didn't it work for you? Why might it work for me or vice versa? Esther, you've mentioned the executive circle a couple of times. Where can people learn about it? Yeah. So what I would just say, if you're interested in the executive inner circle group, to just go to the readyzone.com, T-H-E-R-E-A-D-Y-Z-O-N-E.com, readyzone.com, and just fill out our needs assessment and I'll get in touch with you and we can have a conversation about it. Excellent. Yeah, I know that you provide this think tank and other ways for individuals to get involved and get into this group mindset, but you also work inside larger organizations to help them with all the things that we've talked about and more. So I love the way that you think about business and the the perspective and the energy you bring to it. It seems like you love what you do and you love making workplaces better and connecting people and making their lives better so that everybody can be more productive and the business can thrive and the individuals can thrive. So I love that. And I honor all the work that you do. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that, so one thing that I do like to add, you've worked with a lot of leaders, a lot of entrepreneurs, you've gone in and out and done this on your own after working for other businesses, small and huge. (laughs) And so what advice would you have for anyone that is either, you know, looking to move up in their organization or looking to start their own passion-based business? Like they're wanting to go from internal to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I'd say things. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, I would say you need to understand what it takes to run a business. You absolutely need to know what it takes to run a business because your passion will reach a ceiling at a certain point. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand the business, especially if you're going for funding, you don't understand the mechanics of business and how business works, you're going to be at a great service. Second thing, you absolutely need mentors 
around you that have been there and done that in ways that can allow you not just to see what's possible for you, but also to see what someone else's path was. Because mm-hmm. it gives you hope and inspiration. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is really important is to have people that can coach you in a very pure way. What I mean by that is when I think about coaching, it's asking great questions, listening and empathizing it, and also being trained as an executive coach. Because I think you need someone also to be able to facilitate a conversation where you can discover what's true for yourself and not for them to make your truth their truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, their, their truth. So I would say those are the three most pivotal things. And honestly, even if you're in an organization, knowing how a business runs and being able to understand the mechanics of it will absolutely allow you to rise look better. I mean, I can't tell you how many creators I know that do not know how it ties to the, the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, this, lots of the same rules apply, even if you're inside the organization looking at level up. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know working mostly in smaller organizations, but even as they get larger, if you don't understand how the a business works, not even specifically how your business works, then you have a, a veil over the decisions that are being made. You don't understand why decisions are being made or why you get paid, why you get paid or all the different things that make that business run the way it does. And if you understand the how, then you can better understand and provide better information and insight and your skill set to improve that business as opposed to being angry about decisions or like you said, going back and asking questions is a big part of it. But if you understand why and how the business is run, then you have a better opportunity to make recommendations or to understand why decisions are being made. Yeah, and I'll just say one thing to caveat that maybe round it out is that we are not asking you to become a CPA. You're right. If it's not your skill set, we're just asking you to understand enough the basic and being willing to be educated just enough and to say when you don't know something because i can't tell you how many times also and financial terminology may go over my head or other people's head you have to be able to say okay i'm not stupid i haven't been schooled in this i just need to ask what it means so i can be smarter about it mm-hmm. that's it we're not asking any more than that <laughs> unless you have a fit me for it yeah Absolutely. And everybody always says, hire your gaps. Ask the questions so that you know what they're doing and why, but hire the gaps for sure. Don't don't feel like you have to do and be an expert at everything. Esther, thank you so much. You're awesome. I love you. I'm so happy to have had you on the show today. And I hope that we'll have you again soon. We'll get together. You have so much information to share, and I'm so happy that your path led you to where you are because it's such a natural fit. I can tell that you are really passionate and excited about doing what you do and helping your clients thrive. Yeah, very much so. Thank you so much. And I'm grateful to you for having me on. Thank you for this today. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends. Follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. The mission of MVP Business is to dig deep into the lives of true leaders so that others can follow, knowing that the path isn't always easy, but the journey is worth it. So enjoy the day and live with passion.